Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. After nearly three decades on the Supreme Court, Justice Stephen Breyer says he will retire by the end of the current term. His departure will give President Biden, who vowed during the campaign to nominate a black woman justice, his first opportunity to shape the court. It also comes at a time when the court's nonpartisan nature has come under question. We'll talk about Breyer's legacy, who might succeed him, and the future direction of the court. Join us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. A justice on California Supreme Court, Leandra Kruger, is being seen as among the candidates to succeed Justice Stephen Breyer, who announced he will retire by the end of the current term in June, a term that includes major abortion rights and gun rights cases. Here's Justice Breyer at the White House today as he reminded the nation that its democracy is an experiment. My grandchildren and their children, they'll determine whether the experiment still works. And of course, I am an optimist, and I'm pretty sure it will. Does it surprise you that that's the thought that comes into my mind today? This hour, we'll look at Breyer's legacy and the reputation and future of our nation's highest court. And joining me now is Dahlia Lithwick, a reporter for Slate covering the courts and the law. Dahlia also hosts the podcast, Amicus. And Dahlia, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So first, could I get your reaction to Stephen, Justice Stephen Breyer's uh, speech at the White House today? It just happened moments ago. I, I mean, I think if you had the perfect distillate of the perfect Stephen Breyer farewell, that was it. It was <laughs> all of the things that I think he's dedicated his entire public career to, which is you know, a deep and abiding faith in government, a deep and abiding faith in the bargain between people and government, the responsibility 
of the citizenry to play their part in building a better government. And this kind of almost, I want to say old fashioned optimism Mm -hmm. that even though it all kind of sucks right now and you can (laughs) tell, you know, it's funny, Nina Totenberg uh, at NPR has been reporting that he's just been holding his head in his hands this past term that he really is watching the ground shifting from under him. But this just abiding optimism that uh, we're going to get through it and that the sort of better angels of our nature are going to lead us to creating a more perfect uh, system of law and justice. And I think in a way, it just feels old fashioned. It feels like it's aspirational in the midst of such a lack of faith in government and the courts, but it it would have surprised me if you were anything other than the Jiminy Cricket of the federal bench, insisting that the judiciary and government itself can and will do better. So obviously the timing of Justice Breyer's announcement gives President Biden a chance to name a successor and a democratically controlled Senate a chance to confirm the decision. Can you talk about the significance you see in Breyer's timing? I mean, in some ways, it's not a huge surprise. I think most court watchers had a sense that he was going to go at the end of this term. I think that the decision to make the announcement in January, as opposed to you know April, May, June, July, which is when we typically get these announcements goes to, in some sense, how political this is and how I think he was jammed in some sense, both by liberals and progressives on the one hand, who with increasing ferocity in the last year have called on him to step down so that what happened with Justice Ginsburg uh, couldn't possibly happen again. In other words, uh, she stayed on uh, after it was clear that Um, the Senate could not confirm her replacement. And I think that there is a a real sense, on the other hand, Mitch McConnell had already very openly told reporters that under no set of facts was a Biden nominee going to get confirmed uh, if uh, Democrats lost the Senate in the midterms. And so he had this very, very, very fine window where he had to get out. He was being pressed to get out. Um, And at the same time, I think just in the interest of preserving his own legacy, ensuring that he would be replaced uh, by a Biden nominee in a Democratic controlled Senate, this was his window. And I Mm. think in some sense, if you triangulate against all the speeches he was giving as recently as this fall, you know, the book he just wrote saying, we're not partisans, we're not political actors, there's nothing political uh, about what we do. There is this sort of slightly heartbreaking irony in the fact that he both wanted to be seen as above politics, and yet I think felt jammed into making what looks and feels like a pretty political retirement move. Yes, that's right. The headline to your piece, is the deep irony of Stephen Breyer's bare-knuckled exit from the Supreme Court. So you just explained the irony part, but what about the bare-knuckled part? I mean, I think he has been fighting a two-front war. And I think on the one hand, as I said, you can go back decades uh, and hear him saying that the totality of the court's legitimacy, independence, public 
perception is everything. And, you know, he's been saying, as long as I've heard him give this speech, this isn't a given, right? The court has neither the power of the purse nor the sword. By design, if Congress wanted to turn the lights off and stop the water at the court building, they could do that. The only power the court has is that the public has immense regard for it. And he's been writing and saying for years that that's not a given and that in most countries and even in this country throughout most of history, uh, the court didn't have that kind of uh, uh, public acceptance. And so that makes him, I almost want to say borderline frantic. I mean, he really sees the court poised on a knife edge of a legitimacy crisis. At the same time, he has this other front, which is his own uh, sort of liberal, moderate liberal agenda, um, which he is seeing eroded in front of his very eyes. He has in the past year had to witness the court cutting away at his legacy in terms of how he thinks about reproductive rights, how he thinks about voting rights, how he thinks about uh, uh, unions and labor, how he thinks about the death penalty. All of that is on the chopping block and on the chopping block this term in a way that I think has been very accelerated. Mm -hmm. And I really do think that he is trying so, so hard. And that's why I describe these white knuckles to hold up both things to both preserve his own legacy to make sure that he is replaced by someone who won't further undermine this already a 6-3 supermajority on the court. And at the same time, to preserve public esteem and regard for a bench that I think he is terrified, and certainly the polling suggests he should be terrified, uh, is really, really cratering in public regard. Hmm. Dahlia Lithwick covers the courts and the law for Slate. I want to bring into the conversation now Judge Vince Chabria, federal district court judge for the Northern District of California and also a former clerk for Justice Stephen Breyer. Judge Chabria, thanks so much for being with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. And I'll say that uh, um, I've been really enjoying the speculation about all these potential great nominees, but I really appreciate you taking the time to talk a little bit about the giant shoes that that nominee is going to need to fill. So thanks yes. for Yes. Talk about your reaction to the announcement uh, that Justice Breyer is retiring and what impact you think it will have given uh, the giant shoes as you describe it, Judge Chabria. Well, you know, when I was clerking for him, this was 20 years ago, but uh, what, what was quickly apparent to me when I arrived is that all of Justice Breyer's colleagues really adored him, um, ranging from Justice Thomas to Justice Stevens and everyone in between, really respected him, viewed him as uh, the most good faith, honest of brokers, um, somebody who really cared about the court and uh, getting the outcome right in the cases. And they really wanted to hear what he had to say. They listened to him. And his presence on the court made a difference, made a difference for the cases. Um, and, you know, in Supreme Court circles today, um, everybody understands that that is still the case. That's still true today. Um, and, uh, you know, reports are that he's had an influence in, in recent decisions and so recent important decisions. And so, you know, my primary feeling is one of sadness, both because I have the personal connection to Justice Breyer, and of course, I'm so familiar with him, but also because of the value that he adds to this day on the institution. 
You've described him as a pragmatist, a bridge builder, and you even said that you were a beneficiary of his commitment to diversity. Can you explain what you mean? Yeah. Um, you know, that's something that people don't um, discuss uh, much with respect to Justice Breyer. But, you know, for this 83-year-old white guy from San Francisco, for a long time, he has had an incredible commitment to diversity, racial diversity, uh, gender diversity. And you've seen that in his jurisprudence, right? I mean, one of his most famous um, opinions was his dissent in the parents involved in community schools versus Seattle school district mm -hmm. case, where he very passionately argued that the constitution should not be standing in the way of public officials who are trying to solve the problem of racial isolations and racial isolation in the schools. Um, but he showed it in his personal conduct too, going back to when he was first an appellate court judge. Um, he always wanted to make sure that he had diverse clerks coming through his chambers. Um, and as you mentioned, I was a beneficiary of that as a first generation American. I don't think that I would have been hired for a Supreme Court clerkship if it was not for his commitment to diversity. And of course, that was a benefit to us individually. Uh, but I think more importantly, he saw it as a benefit to him. He saw it as a benefit to him because and to the court because you know, people of different viewpoints and backgrounds were coming through and participating in, in the decision making. Also, you know, by hiring us and launching this diverse group of clerks into the highest echelons of the legal profession, um, he's improved the profession and improved our democracy. And, and that's a, you know, you think about the, the people you have, Risa Golubov, who's the Dean of University of Virginia Law School. You have Jenny Martinez, who's the Dean of Stanford Law School. You have um, Neil Katyal, who was the former Solicitor General. You have uh, Katanji Brown-Jackson, perhaps you've heard of her. And, uh, the, you know, all these people who are now participating in making our system better. And, and we're all here largely because of Justice Breyer. We're talking with Judge Vince Chabria, former clerk for Justice Stephen Breyer, federal district court judge for the Northern District of California. Also with us, Talia Lithwick, a reporter for Slate who covers the courts and the law. We're talking about Justice Breyer's retirement. And if you have questions about Justice Breyer's jurisprudence, his legacy, or what impact his departure will have, you can call us 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. You can email us, forum at kqed.org or post your thoughts on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. More after the break. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. 
Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about Justice Stephen Breyer and his announcement that he will be retiring at the end of the term. Here's Justice Breyer speaking to CNN's Farid Zakaria in September about the Supreme Court's decision in Bush v. Gore, which he did not support. I dissented in Bush v. Gore, but I heard the Democratic leader in the Senate, Harry Reid, say the most remarkable thing about that opinion is people followed it without guns, riots, stones in the streets. And when people think too bad there weren't, I mean, I thought it was wrong. And when I hear them say, well, too bad there weren't a few riots, I say, hey, it's not too difficult to see what happens in countries and in places and in times when people don't follow a rule of law. It's terrible. So it's a miracle. It's a miracle, this country, in, in, in that respect. We're talking about Justice Stephen Breyer's legacy with Dahlia Lithwick, a reporter for Slate, and Judge Vince Chabria, who clerked for Justice Breyer and is also a federal district court judge for the Northern District of California. Um, Judge Chabria, you've described him as an optimist. He shows himself there as being one. You've also described him as coming from a family of public servants in California. I don't know that a lot of people fully know his California roots across the state. Yeah, he, you know, his grandfather was a member of the San Francisco Board of Supervisors. His father was the general counsel of the San Francisco Unified School District. And in fact, the boardroom in San Francisco in the school district is called the Irving G. Breyer Boardroom. His mother was active in the League of Women Voters. You heard him talking about his mother today at the White House. Uh, his aunt Shirley was a, a well-known union activist in the Bay Area. His brother, a longtime public servant, district attorney, uh, Watergate prosecutor, now federal judge also. And, you know, I think that has shaped his jurisprudence. He, uh, you know, Dahlia mentioned, uh, you know, the concept of deep and abiding faith in government, of wanting to make sure that the law works for people and the public officials who are uh, trying to tackle our problems in good faith. And I think a lot of that comes from uh, being in a very public-minded family uh, that has spent a lot of time focusing on solving society's problems. Was there ever a time that you disagreed with him? Huh. Um, well, it's funny you should ask because uh, I can think of a couple of times uh, during the year that I worked with him. One, I disagreed with him on school vouchers. Um, he believed that uh, a school, private school voucher program was unconstitutional. Um, and I disagreed with him about that. But uh, for, for purposes of this show, given the Dahlia is here, I should tell the story about the case of the Potawatomi School District versus Lindsay Earls. Um, that was a case where the school district adopted a policy requiring drug testing of the high school students. And, uh, but it wasn't all the students. Um, and it wasn't based on any suspicion that any particular students were using drugs, right? The line that the school drew was, if you are going to participate in extracurricular activities at the school, we are going to require you to be drug tested. If you're not participating in any extracurricular activities, you don't have to be drug tested. So the policy was, we're not going to drug test the burnouts. We're only going to drug test the people who are sort of responsible members of the community. 
I thought that was ridiculous, and I thought that it was an infringement on the on the privacy rights of the students who were participating in extracurricular activities. Um, I argued back and forth with Justice Breyer about that case a lot, um, and in in a last ditch effort um, to convince him to change his mind, I found this article by Dahlia Lithwick <laughs> with a scathing description of the school board and its policy and how it came to that policy. And I put it in front of Justice Breyer to try to convince him to change his mind. Um, but uh, he, he didn't, it didn't work. Um, sorry to, to report that, Dahlia. But um, I, I do think, you know, what, what his view of the case was, look, maybe the policy is ridiculous, but going back to what we've talked about already, he believed that the job of the law and the constitution was to get out of the way of public officials who were, who were making a good faith effort to tackle our society's problems. And there was a problem in the schools with drug use. And it's not like the, these officials were acting in bad faith. They were sort of doing their best in an imperfect situation. And that sort of, that case reflected his constitutional philosophy, I think. Mm. You know, Judge Chapa, I know you need to leave us soon, and I appreciate the time you've given us today. One of the things that, um, as we mentioned earlier, he's a bridge builder, and he's been talked about a lot as somebody who was willing to compromise with people who had differing views, someone who was willing to, to give up everything for some of a win, and so on. Do you think that that, that style is right for this moment? Do you see that as having lost some of its appeal, given just how how polarized we are as a country now, and just how the game is being played politically more broadly? No, I think it's more important now than ever um, to be making a good faith effort to find common ground, um, on particularly in the judiciary. Uh, I will say about Justice Breyer, everything you said about him is true. He was a, a, a true pragmatist, and he uh, really did make an effort to find common ground and sometimes made an effort to, to compromise. On the other hand, you know, he believed very, very strongly in the principles that we have been talking about today. And there were many cases where there was going to be no compromise because he you know, tried really hard to get the court to the place that he wanted to be, such as the the Seattle schools case that I talked about. And if if you know if if, if he believed that the court was uh, uh, was poised to um, do something that would interfere with the ability of public officials to solve problems in a meaningful way, he was going to dissent. He was not going to compromise. And so. Um, I, I think that that description of Justice Breyer that we're hearing is is accurate to a point, but it doesn't quite tell the whole story. And, and he was very passionate about these cases and continues to be today. And I have to say that I have never met anyone who cares more about their work or about our democracy than Justice Breyer. Judge Vince Chabria, thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you. Vince Jabria, Federal District Court for the Northern District of California, former clerk for Justice Stephen Breyer. With us is Dahlia Lithwick, a reporter for Slate, covering the courts and the law, and you, our listeners, telling us your questions about Justice Breyer's jurisprudence or the impact of his departure. Also, would love to hear what your view is of the U.S. Supreme Court today. Has it changed recently? 
how or why, give us a call, 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. Get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. Email us, forum at kqed.org. Post your thoughts on Instagram. This listener tweets, these are exciting times. I really enjoyed Justice Breyer's speech, subtle yet on point. And JL writes, Anita Hill is the absolute perfect candidate to fill Judge Breyer's shoes on so many levels. On top of America owing her, she may be overqualified in her own right. Dahlia Lithwick, as Charia uh, alluded to, we, uh, as a media and as a public, go straight to this question of who will succeed. Justice Breyer, and I too was glad that we have been able to give some airtime to his legacy and his judicial philosophy. But I do want to turn the conversation to asking you a little bit about who is likely to be nominated? Uh, Biden reiterated today at a White House event with Breyer his promise on the campaign trail that he would nominate a black woman to the court, which would be a historic nomination. Can you give us a sense of the leading contenders there? Um, yeah, we're so lucky. And I'm so glad, actually, that um, Judge Shabria talked about the importance of diversity. Uh, on the bench and in government, because we are now kind of spiraling into a really um, not pleasant conversation about um, why it was that uh, then candidate Biden said he would make a point of uh, putting the first black woman on the court. Um, and, and already we're really going to hear a lot of fighting about that. And, and it's unfortunate because the pool of uh, Black women, and he uh, reaffirmed today in that press conference that, that that's his intention, uh, is a really spectacular uh, pool of women. And so some of the nominees who uh, are being surfaced right now are, as you said at the beginning, California Supreme Court Justice Leandra Kruger, who's an incredibly strong candidate. Um, U.S. Circuit Court Judge Katanji Brown Jackson, um, who is uh, already, I think, uh, seen as pretty much the front runner uh, of the nominees whose names uh, are circling. U.S. District Judge Michelle Childs is in the mix. Um, Biden nominated her uh, uh, to be a judge, but she is a a favorite of Representative James Clyburn from South Carolina, um, who actually pushed Biden uh, to make that pledge to seat the first Black woman judge. Uh, there are a lot of other names, Sherilyn Eiffel from the NAACP mm. uh, Legal Defense Fund. Her name is swirling around. Um, we are hearing things like Kamala Harris and Anita Hill <laughs> and Michelle Obama, but I don't think we're going to see um, what I would call a kind of a splashy, you know, make a point appointment. I think we're going to see uh, one of any number of just ferociously qualified uh, African-American women uh, jurists be elevated uh, uh, to that seat. And so I think it's, it's actually really thrilling to see uh, the deep and wide pool of names that are circulating. And we have some tape actually of President Biden reiterating his commitment to naming a black woman justice to the U.S. Supreme Court. Here it is. I've made no decision except one. The person I will nominate will be someone with extraordinary qualifications, character, experience, and integrity. And that person will be the first black woman ever nominated to the United States Supreme Court. It's long overdue in my view. I made that commitment during the campaign for president, and I will keep that commitment. 
I will fully do what I said I'd do. And again, President Biden at the White House today on announcing Justice Breyer's retirement. And here we have listeners on the line with uh, questions for you, Dahlia. Scott and Martinez start us off. Hi, Scott. Yeah, hi. Uh, thanks. Um, just a real quick uh, uh, question. Um, the Democrats, yeah, they have the House and the Senate and and all that. But I'm just wondering if there are still any potential uh, shenanigans that uh, the Republicans can pull to uh, trip up any uh, Biden uh, uh, nominee. Mm, thanks, Scott. Yeah, as long as a runway that the Democrats and Biden have. Uh, what do you think in terms of potential shenanigans, uh, to use Scott's word, Dahlia? Shenanigans is a very gentle word, Scott, and I, I um, applaud you. Uh, I think that there is always a possibility. Look, at one level, you have a 50-50 razor-thin Senate and the possibility of Kamala Harris casting the deciding vote. We haven't seen that historically. And it's worth just saying, because we're in a pandemic and a lot of senators are old, that that 50-50 margin uh, could change uh, in a heartbeat. And so I think that is back of mind, uh, maybe uh, not as back of mind as it might ordinarily be, that the composition of the Senate uh, could change in a day. But assuming uh, that you've got a 50-50 Senate uh, and the tie-breaking vote, assuming also that you have a Judiciary Committee that is evenly split 11-11 and a parliamentary maneuver that could allow uh, Chuck Schumer to, to break that log jam. I think the presumption is uh, that there's not too, too much that Mitch McConnell could do uh, before uh, potentially having the Senate flip after the 2022 midterms. I, I will say, I think it's been important to uh, President Biden to not have a split, you know, 50-50 uh, razor-thin vote. And one of the reasons, as I mentioned, that we are seeing Katanji Brown-Jackson right. put forth as a, a potential frontrunner is because just a year ago, she was confirmed to the uh, Federal Appeals Court for the District of Columbia, and three Republican senators voted for her. And so I think there is some attraction to putting someone on the court who almost invariably is going to have to get some kind of bipartisan support. And that's, I think, very, very attractive to Biden. So I I think shenanigans notwithstanding, I think that this administration is setting a slightly higher bar, which is even with shenanigans to try to get something that looks like a not split vote. Well, John writes, is it likely that Biden can find a non-Christian black woman justice? After Breyer's retirement, there will be only one non-Christian on the court, which seems concerning during a time in which people want to push Christian supremacy. Looks like John is looking for more religious diversity. I mean, it is interesting. We have had um, over the last uh, few decades a court that was, through most of history, 100% Protestant white men uh, suddenly have no Protestants on it. And that uh, is really interesting. Uh, When John Paul Stevens stepped down, he, I think, only slightly tongue-in-cheek said, well, I was the last Protestant. Good luck, America. Uh, so he was was actually, I think, very, very uh, aware uh, that the court was and still is uh, not just screwing 
uh, skewing, excuse me, uh, Christian, but skewing Catholic. There's also, I think, it, it is noteworthy that uh, Breyer occupied what was seen as the traditionally Jewish seat to the extent there was one on the court that has been uh, uh, for a long time, Justice Brandeis, Justice Cardozo, uh, was seen as uh, a seat that should uh, go to a, a Jewish nominee. So I think there's some sense that that is a, a piece of religion just diversity that is going to go away. It, it seems to me that um, this question of religious diversity on the court is a really fraught one. And I say that as somebody who's reported that on that over the year. Um, I think we, in some ways, are much more comfortable talking about racial and ethnic and gender diversity on the bench than talking about religious diversity. And I would just agree with your questioner. I think that in a time when the court is deciding really, really fiery questions about religious liberty uh, and the wall between church and state, the fact that we're not having a comfortable conversation about the ways in which religion inflects on doctrine is really, really problematic. That's been going on, I think, for at least a decade. You know, going back to Scott's earlier question about shenanigans, I've heard a couple of things that I just want to put to you quickly for your opinion. I've heard that it's possible that the GOP will do everything they can to make hay out of this, that we'll be hearing some terrible things and really trying to go after Biden uh, to secure what they think will be you know, better odds for them in the midterms and in the presidential election. I'm hearing Others say, well, maybe because this will be a Democratic president and a democratically controlled Senate, though just barely, that this is going to be a chance for the GOP to create some veneer of bipartisanship and would not want to be on the bad side of a historic vote. <laughs> Do you have a thought on which of these you think is the more likely scenario? You know, I'd really hoped for the latter scenario. It seemed to me that when you have a 6-3 supermajority on the court, um, and you're not really all that fussed about making it seven to two, that it would be a really, really good time to say, hey, uh, whoever it is that President Biden puts forward, uh, uh, you know, as Lindsey Graham has said, elections matter, it's his prerogative, and uh, we welcome and support that person. And particularly, I think, with the historic promise of the first ever African-American woman that you could really, I think, send a loud, bipartisan signal that after having historically zero African-American women on the court, that that is a thing that we could all get behind. The, the early signaling that I am hearing is not uh, that. It is a choice to, uh, even absent the naming of uh, who the nominee is, uh, to start to kick up a fuss about the issues you raised at the beginning, that this is affirmative action, uh, that none of these women are qualified, that this is reflective of antipathy toward white men. Uh, you're hearing that from Josh Hawley, you're hearing that from Nikki Haley. So it, it's out there and it's really unfortunate. We're talking about Justice Breyer's retirement and the impact that it's having with Dahlia Lithwick of Slate. Stay with us, listeners. We'll have more after the break. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. 
Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're looking at Justice Stephen Byer's legacy and the future of our nation's highest court and its reputation with Dahlia Lithwick, a reporter for Slate covering the courts and the law, also hosts the podcast Amicus. We're also talking about who could succeed Justice Breyer potentially as well and what could happen during that process. 866-733-6786 is the number to join the conversation. Email address forum at kqed.org. Find us at KQED Forum on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. What are your questions about Justice Stephen Breyer's retirement? What's your view of the U.S. Supreme Court today? Curious if your view of it has changed. Why would you like to see reforms? Let me go to caller Frank, who's been waiting. Hi, Frank. Hi, how are you doing? Uh, thanks for taking my call. Yeah, uh, yeah this is the, my, my question has to do with the opinion in general of the American public now and moving forward about the Supreme Court. And so I want to reference uh, Jim, James Fallows wrote a phenomenal uh, article just a couple of days ago on his podcast called On Life Tenure and Its Drawbacks. Mm-hmm. And I think he makes a very strong case for life tenure is essentially absurd in any job, particularly one as central to, uh, to the United States as, as the Supreme Court. So I'd like, I'd like to know my, uh, what the panel's opinions are about switching the court and what's the likelihood of switching the court to like an 18-year term, which Congress can do, uh, from a life tenure? What are the pros and cons of that? Uh, Frank, thanks. And of course, Dahlia, President Biden had a court commission looking at potential changes to the court. That was brought up as one possibility. What do you think of Frank's question? I think Frank is spot on. Uh, I think that when the framers uh, afforded to Article Three judges lifetime tenure, for one thing, life expectancy was not uh, uh, 90 years. I don't think they expected folks to do as they're now doing. The most recent data I've seen is that they now are saying that most Supreme Court justices will serve for 35 years on average. That was never what the framers intended. Um, and I think that even though what the framers thought when they gave um, uh, justices life tenure, they thought that they were immunizing them, right, from political majoritarian influence. But what they've in fact done, as Frank points out, um, and as Jim Fallows points out, is immunize them uh, for life from any consequences. And I think that's the concern. It is certainly true that the blue ribbon panel that was put together to scrutinize um 
whether there could be meaningful court reform did look at the question of lifetime tenure. They uh, pointed out that almost no Supreme Courts uh, uh, do that. They looked at the possibility of 18 year or other kinds of term limits in various ways to make this less of a political football so that every single um, uh, retirement and nomination doesn't turn into a sort of conflagration uh, as it has now been. I will say that while the Court Reform Commission came away from their months and months of scrutiny uh, saying we're definitely not for court expansion, one or two of the commissioners later said they were, but they did seem at least somewhat open to uh, term limiting uh, uh, future jurists. In other words, it wasn't swept off the table. Uh, I do think that there was a general sense from that commission that to do anything at all to um, change the way the court operates, including, by the way, ethics reform, uh, financial disclosure, a whole host of other things that would help. Um, you know, Frank's question begins with the fact that um, the court's approval rating are the lowest we've ever seen in the history of Gallup polling. We're now seeing public approval at, you know, 38%, 42%. So the court really is in a legitimacy crisis. And it seems to me that the commission largely came away from their work feeling that to even talk about reforming mm. the court, much less to do it, uh, is to undermine the legitimacy of the court. And so I think we're in a little bit of a, a, an almost circular uh, pattern where while it's clear that the court needs some oversight, the fact that the court is in such low public esteem seems to mitigate against exactly that kind of oversight. Well, Frank, thanks for the call. 866-733-6786 is the number, of course, if you want to call as well. Uh, on the subject of court reform, another listener tweets, I think that the Supreme Court should be expanded to 13 justices, but I'm really worried what the Republicans would do the next time they take power. Would a court expansion have to pass through both the House and Senate? Uh, the, the Yes, it, expanding the court would be tricky, although, uh, as you just noted, not nearly as tricky as uh, doing away with life tenure, which at least some uh, constitutional scholars say would require uh, amending the Constitution. I think there are uh, ways around that that some of the folks on the Court Reform Commission put forward. Uh, but yes, I think that there is a real fear that even if you could do a court expansion, um, adding seats, which again, the Supreme Court is singular amongst the Supreme Courts of most uh, uh, constitutional democracies in that uh, it seems to be locked in at nine, uh, which is a really, really small number, um, and then doesn't sit in panels, sits in this uh, nine justice configuration. One historical point, of course, is that when FDR uh, tried to threaten to uh, pack the court, as it was called at the time, he almost uh, destroyed his own presidency. Uh, the popular outcry was so acute. And so I think, right or wrong, the American public has convinced themselves that nine justices is magic, that it's somewhere in the Constitution it can't be fiddled with. And I think it's one of the reasons that it is not seen as a, a, a real uh, meaningful change. And I think exactly that question gets at the point, which is if you are in mutually assured destruction mode, which I think it's <laughs> fair to say we're in right now, the prospect of someday having a 900 person Supreme Court, because every 
outside just keeps expanding it to fit their own whims is really chilling. And I think that is one of the reasons that although many, as I said, commissioners thought the only possible fix is to expand the court and that it's overdue for an expansion for all sorts of demographic reasons, uh, they just did not come away making any commitment to that as a project. We're talking with Dahlia Lithwick, who covers the courts and the law for Slate. And you, our listeners, are joining us with your thoughts about the U.S. Supreme Court today and about Justice Breyer's retirement. And Leslie writes, what a sad day that a great man of our highest court finds it necessary to retire because of the possibility of Mitch McConnell's proven single-person ability to block a vote on a presidential nominee for the court. What will history say? Whether or not that played a big role in Breyer's thinking, I think what Leslie's getting at and what you've been saying throughout this conversation, Dahlia Lithwick, is that that the courts who are on it, the people who, how they have been put on it, the processes um, of nomination and confirmation have really, really shaken up public confidence potentially in the court and that it could be facing real legitimacy and credibility problems with broader impact. And I'm wondering if you could talk about that a little bit and some specific examples that you can point to of concern it goes back to something I think Judge Chabria talked about at the very top of the show, which is that Justice Breyer, and you know, I'm old, let's just put it out there. I've been covering the court for 20 years. And one of the things that I always saw in my years of covering the court, and I guess this goes also to the what what the clip you played about Bush v. Gore, is even when the court was wildly polarized, for instance, in Bush v. Gore, I mean, literally handed an election to a president using reasoning that, by the way, was expressly never to be used again, right? It was an overtly, I think, political act. And yet, Justice Breyer was so deft at building bridges, working through differences. He had this deep, deep abiding friendship with Justice Scalia, who he disagreed with on everything. And yet the two of them would go around from one place to another doing this funny dog and pony show about originalism versus pragmatism. And they revered each other. He revered um, Sandra Day O'Connor. And he was always kind of working the levers to get to five, to get to six to try to preserve the idea that the court was not a 5-4 partisan institution. And as I said, as recently as this fall, he was writing a book about it and giving that speech. What's changed, I think, is that for the first time in my two decades plus covering the court, we don't have a 5-4 court with somebody at the middle. We have a 6-3 court for all intents and purposes. And what that means is that not only has the court reached out and granted cases, you know, for instance, Dobbs, which is the Mississippi abortion ban case, they didn't need to take that case. They had just decided a virtually identical case. Recently, they've reached out to take uh, an affirmative action case that will be decided uh, uh, next year, reached out to take, uh, you know, many, many issues on that were beyond the scope of the kinds of things the court usually grants. And then what we're seeing almost unerringly at oral argument is this 6-3 split. And the reason that matters is that I think as long 
as there was somebody in play at the center, a median justice that looked as though, hey, I'm open to both sides. You know, what can I do? It seems like it's kind of horse trading, but it's really not. It's exactly the thing that Judge Chabria was talking about, which is how do we build consensus? How do we compromise? How do we do it so that not everybody gets everything they want? But a lot of people get something. And that's just disappeared um, as soon as Amy Coney Barrett um, got the seat that had belonged to Ruth Bader Ginsburg. The median justice now at the court is Brett Kavanaugh, who is mm. without a doubt uh, strongly conservative. Right. And so I think what I link to this sort of legitimacy crisis is the idea that now you simply have six justices who are in one term, as I said before, willing to end Roe v. Wade. I'm pretty much willing to predict that after oral argument, who are willing to massively expand gun rights, uh, who are willing to do away with affirmative action, who are very, very strongly signaling that they're going to strongly endorse uh, much more uh, public taxpayer funding of religious schools. All of those things are happening in a blink. And I think that the sense that you have three liberal justices who have no one to deal with, mm. <laughs> who just write dissents, um, that nothing is moving and nothing is changing, that is a profound shift. And the American public is seeing that. And I think regardless of your politics, and this goes to, to the, question, the, the, the question before, but the idea that this is Mitch McConnell's court and we all just live with it, and that nothing is going to move and nothing is going to change, I think is very, very much not how we envisioned the Article Three judiciary to work. Well, Tom writes, when the court guts or overturns Roe, it'll be hard not to see this as an entirely political body. It's unprecedented taking away an established constitutional right. So just take that a little bit further in terms of when a court loses its view of being at least less partisan, right? The branch of government that is less partisan um, and that its rulings um, are reached with some degree of give and take among the justices. What impact that has on a democracy? I think that is the question. And I think my answer probably has two parts. One is, and this, and this, I think, goes to that question about Roe. When the court was hearing oral argument in that Dobbs case, that Mississippi 15-week abortion ban, court watchers expected to hear the court talking about, you know, there's precedent, there's Roe, there's Casey from 1992. How do we fiddle with that precedent and make a 15-week ban okay when the current line is at uh, 23, 24 weeks. That's not what we heard. What we heard was overwhelmingly five votes for saying maybe we just reverse precedent. Maybe stare decisis, the notion that courts don't just willy-nilly reverse decades of precedent, uh, doesn't matter. And I think that that notion, that the composition of the court can change the law and the ways in which uh, Americans have relied on the law for decades is very, very destabilizing because it really does suggest that the court is a political football and that you win at all costs because whatever happened before doesn't guide you going forward. So that's a piece of it. And then I think there's a much more pernicious and worrisome piece, and that is that this court has been chipping away 
at voting itself, at democracy itself. And so whether you talk about Citizens United, the campaign finance decision, we've already talked about Bush v. Gore, uh, we can talk about Shelby County, the decision to eviscerate uh, uh, Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, or we can talk about Brnovich, which was the decision uh, to do away this last year with Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. But as the court leans into this project of making it harder and harder for de representative democracy to work, uh, making vote suppression okay, making it harder and harder for folks who are the victims of racialized voting uh, uh, laws to even get into a court, much less effectuate their rights. It starts to look as though the court isn't just, as you said, a kind of counter-majoritarian check or an anti-democratic uh, 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 protector of civil rights, but the court is actually going after democracy itself. And that's the thing that I think people are starting to grapple with is that we have massive majorities of uh, the public that doesn't want to see Roe overturned, that doesn't want to see gun rights massively expanded, uh, that wants one person, one vote to still be the law, that wants to be able to protect minority voting rights. And all of those things are being reversed, not in the legislatures or somewhat in the legislatures, but they're being blessed by the courts. And I think that what you're getting is a court that is feels as though more and more it's working to undermine uh, popular democratic will. And that's the place where I think you really do have a crisis of legitimacy. So we've talked about the optics, the six to three court, the sense that the court is way, way, way out over its skis taking cases uh, it doesn't need to hear. But this second piece, and it seems wonky and doctrinal and not super interesting, but I think this second piece where the court seems to be at war with the idea of elections themselves mattering is a thing that I really, really worry has us on a crisis, almost a precipice of how does this get resolved? And if you think this is hyperbolic, Let's just stop to remember that the 2020 election could have very easily gone to the U.S. Supreme Court and that the 2024 election, if everything that we're seeing unfolding now is any guide, the 2024 election will be decided at the court. And that's really the chilling part of this for me. We're talking about the future of the U.S. Supreme Court in light of Justice Breyer's announcement that he's retiring with Dahlia Lithwick, and you're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. So how should we react, push back, adapt to a more extreme court like this to ensure a functioning democracy? Do you have any thoughts on that, Dahlia? We just have a minute left. I have lots of thoughts, and I think it goes to not waiting until the court reverses Roe v. Wade and saying that's going to be the thing uh, that gets us uh, focused on the court. I think that uh, we have to watch the work of the court every single day. The court has made uh, abortion in Texas impossible since September 1st. That's one-tenth of the population of childbearing uh, uh, women in the United States have not had a right to abortion since September 1st. And we've let it slide away. So I think it's being focused and being really aware and making our voices heard now more than ever. Uh, the court does respond to public uh, outcry. And I think that it's really, really not a good time to sort of hit the snooze button and hope that this gets worked out in the future. Dahlia Lithwick of Slate also hosts the podcast Amigas. Thanks so much for talking with us. 
Thank you, Mina, for having me. Also, my thanks to Judge Vince Chabria, who joined us earlier, federal district court judge for the Northern District of California and former clerk for justice, Stephen Breyer. My thanks to the listeners for their questions and insights and to Susie Britton and Grace One for producing today's segment. I'm Mina Kim. You've been listening to Forum. Thank you. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Soul to Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Soul to Story are available now.